All right, good to be here, good to be in the pulpit, good to be in the Word. So let's take a look. We're going to be in Haggai this morning, uh, Haggai chapter 2. Again, I've, I've kind of said if you're not sure how to find that in your Bible, go ahead to Matthew and then start flipping backwards. Uh, it's the easiest way to find the minor prophets uh, in the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that is fine. You can read along. The words of Scripture will be on the screen. So we're in Haggai chapter 2 this morning. Let's go ahead and hear the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. Oh, okay. Never mind. Sometimes we have glitches. Well, that's where we're going. All right, so here we go. Verse 2 here, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and, all the rem- and to all the remnant of the people say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest said, no. Then Haggai said, if Someone is unclean, who is unclean by contact with a dead body, touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so so is it with the people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before a stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, but there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 measures, but there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil and blight with the mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, 
Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by sword of his own brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for this day that you've given to us, this time we have to, to worship you through the proclamation of your word and to worship you through receiving your word and to worship you through then action after your word. Father, I pray that as we dive into Haggai chapter 2 today, that you would put me aside, that it would be you, that is, as I bring this forth, that I would just be an instrument of of your message, that I would be a, a tool to bring you glory through this. Father, I pray that as we, we go into this, that you would move in our hearts, you would convict us, you would challenge us, you would, you would draw us closer to you in all that we do, reminding us that, that we are to, to proclaim your word for your glory and for your sake. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. All right, so Haggai chapter 2. So it's starting out here about a month from the end of Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1 and 2 take place in a very short time frame. Uh, Some of the other prophets that we read, like when we read through Isaiah, it takes a long time. There's years of of proclamation in Isaiah. Daniel is another example. We read through Daniel, multiple years and multiple prophecies taking place there. Haggai, God's using him for a very short period of time to get a a very specific and concise message through to the people. And at the beginning of this, he's about a month out from when he had just proclaimed what he needed to proclaim in Haggai chapter 1, and how he's doing it again. He's been given a word from the Lord, and God has asked Haggai um, to talk about the state of the temple before before the exile, and now the state of the temple as it sits, as they're back, right? And and God's having the people compare the current state of ruin of the temple to its former glory. Uh, Solomon's temple was one of these buildings in in ancient times that was just considered one of those marvels, one of those wonders, one of those fantastic things of the ancient world. And, And it showed not just Solomon's wisdom and Solomon's wealth and Solomon's glory, it really showed God's wisdom, God's wealth, God's glory, and proclaimed that so that all who came to Jerusalem could see it. And, and here we're seeing the temple, the dwelling place of the Lord God Almighty laying in ruins. And, and this, as the people really considered this, as they, they sat down and they thought about the result, it, they, they were discouraged. They were brought into discouragement. They know the temple was, was the means through which God dwelt with his people. It was where God had meaningful fellowship 
with his people. And the temple brought God glory. The temple brought God pleasure. And now the temple lays in ruins. And God will ask the people to remember the past. But, but he's asked them to remember the past. One of the beautiful things that God does is he asks them, remember your past. But take action toward the future. Move forward. Don't stay in the past. See, God moved among the Israelites during, during Moses' time to build the tabernacle. And he moved during Solomon's time to, to build the temple. And now he's going to move among all of the nations to provide restoration for his house. And as we read through this passage, we see there's, there's a greater foreshadowing taking place here, right? That there's, there's this foreshadowing of a greater temple, the final temple, Jesus whose gracious sacrifice on the cross restores fellowship between God and his people once and for all. And it's weird because we think about this, we think about Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed about 66 years or so prior to the events that we're seeing taking place in, in Haggai as a book. Yet among some of the returning exiles were some who would remember the magnificence of the temple. They would remember it. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? See, the people who remembered Solomon's temple could easily see that even a rebuilt temple would seem inferior. Because I'm thinking, if it had been 66 years, these folks that would remember Solomon's temple would all be at least in their 70s. And if you're a four or five-year-old looking at this thing, it's always bigger when you're that size anyway. It's always grander when you're that size anyway. There are things that you can you go back to and see as an adult, and you're, they're not as grand as they were when you remember seeing them first as a kid. And it would be hard for them to imagine God doing something bigger than that. But the Lord sees their heartbreak, and he tells them to be strong. But with this direction, he also comes along that assurance of, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. I am with you was, was a repeat from what we heard from Haggai 1, right? And I am with you is this, this promise, and it's, it's, it promises the people so much. It's, it's a promise of comfort. It's a promise of blessing. It's a promise of grace. It's a promise of victory. Here, when he says, I am with you, it, it adds to that promise yet again. It's a promise that when God says, be strong, as he does in verse 4, that he will give them the strength they need. Not that it comes from themselves. Be strong. I am with you. God's presence is the basis of their ongoing work, even when they feel discouraged. I'm going to say this, and it's important for us to listen here a little bit. Sometimes when we read, be strong for I am with you, sometimes those are difficult things to read in Scripture. Especially in seasons of life in which you feel the most discouraged. Now, this isn't a sermon about being encouraged from the Lord. This isn't a sermon about 
moving past discouragement. But it's an important reminder for us when we see this. And, and, and trust me in this, especially this week, I'm reminding myself of this as much as I'm reminding the church. The words of God are always more true than your feelings and emotions. Hear that again. The words of God are more true than our feelings and our emotions. I'm not saying emotions aren't real. Emotions are real. But when they run high, they will lie to us and they will skew our perceptions of the reality around us. When you are discouraged, turn to the Word. The lo- Just as you turn to the Word... Ask the Lord for assurance of his presence. Ask the Lord for assurance of his strength as you read his word. Know this, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the promise of I am with you means the living Christ dwells within you and you abide in him. That is a huge promise. Go to that. And and when God says, be strong for I am with you, what he's saying here too, it goes so hand in hand with fear not. And that that we see in verse 5, that fear not there. God's telling his people not to fear as a reminder of his presence with them. He tells them that my spirit remains in your midst. Man, this is one of the strongest Statements of the assurance of God's presence among his people in all of the Old Testament. My spirit remains in your midst. As as I look at this and I see this, I'm thinking, man, God is with these people. He's there dwelling with them, even in a temple that lies in ruins. They shouldn't fear. They should have strength that is coming from him. They should be ready to feel as though they can conquer the world because the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the creator of all the universe, his spirit is in their midst. And when we look at verses 6 through 9, God refers to himself as the Lord of hosts. And he does it five times in three verses does it five times. The title of the Lord of hosts is, is to remind his people that God is sovereign over everything. The Lord of hosts. He hosts what? He hosts the universe. It's his. He rules over it. He has authority over it. There is nothing out there that God has not thought of or in charge of. And he says it to these returned exiles five times. These are people who who look like they needed all the assurances that they could get to remember that the Lord their God is with them and that they are his children. And if they are his children, he will take care of them. He will comfort them. He will provide for them. He will bless them. And he will be with them in the midst of their discouragement. He will be with them in the midst of their turmoil. And all he asks that they do, all that he asks, is that they trust him, rely on him, 
and remain obedient to him. In Haggai chapter 1, God had been withholding yields from the people because they had been withholding worship and they had been withholding service to God. The people repented of that and have turned back to God and are worshiping and serving him once more. But but as they serve him, he will shake the nations and, and bring in the materials necessary to rebuild the temple at no cost to his own people. I love this. Remember we talked about this, that, that Haggai and, and Ezra are, are parallel. Right? So in Ezra chapter 6, we see a decree from Darius that those who had been trying to stop the work in, in the temple were being ordered to pay for and provide everything and anything that the Israelites asked for in the temple as it's being rebuilt. The promise of what we're seeing here in Haggai chapter 2 is fulfilled in Ezra chapter 6 within literally months or weeks of this proclamation that we see. See, the, the temple of God, of the God of Israel, is being constructed by goods and funds from the surrounding Gentile nations. God will, will fill his house with products made from Gentiles, with and he's going to fill that house, this house made of Gentile products with, with his glory and with his presence. And, and we look at that and there's, there's this beautiful foreshadowing of the incarnation of Jesus and the Gentiles being brought in and adopted as, as children of God through the work of Jesus. And it's also a fulfillment of the covenant. One of the fulfillments of the covenant made in, in Exodus 19 about Israel becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to bring the people to God. And all of these materials, as they're, as they're all coming in, all these materials coming in to, to rebuild the temple, God reminds them ultimately that he owns all the wealth of all the nations. The gold and the silver are his, and he can redistribute it as he sees fit. And it should be used in obedience to him. However, that obedience looks as he's called us to it. Verse 9, God tells the people that, that this new rebuilt temple will have more glory and more beauty than the original temple of Solomon. This temple that the, that the people are rebuilding will again be remodeled in the Roman era by Herod the Great. Uh, and, and Herod, it's interesting, will again use Roman funds to remodel this temple and, and to, to add to it. Uh, that temple was larger historically than Solomon's temple. Uh, and it's historically documented as being, again, one of the more beautiful structures of the ancient Near East. But here's the neat thing about Herod's temple, and that's what we refer to the temple. This Herod's temple is the one that was still standing in the time of Jesus. And it gets its real glory from Jesus being present in it, Jesus teaching in it, Jesus cleansing it just before uh, Passover that one time. And, and, and Jesus' presence and the presence of Jesus is always a greater glory than any earthly built temple. 
even Solomon's temple, even Herod's temple. And as Haggai is here kind of continuing to to preach and proclaim, another word comes to him in verse 10. This one comes just a couple months after the one he had given in verse 1 of chapter 2. This time the Lord uses the analogy of ritual holiness and ritual defilement to talk about things. And he's using it this particular analogy to get, the, to get the people to reflect on their condition before God rather than the condition of the temple. Haggai questions the priest directly to force him to think about and to reflect on the uncleanliness of the people before the Lord. He asks the questions of the priest because this is the priest's job, right? They, they are to, to make rulings about rituals and rulings about the law. And the question that Haggai asks is about holy meat. Now, we don't talk about holy meat in New Testament society. That's just not kind of what we talk about. Holy meat was the meat that was consecrated for the purposes of making temple sacrifices. And this idea of, of holy meat goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 27. And Leviticus 6, 27 says, Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that. Uh, you shall wash that garment on which it was splashed in a holy place. See, the priests understood this to mean that the holiness could be transferred from a consecrated object to a person or to another object. But what Haggai asks is, can the holiness go from the second object? be transferred on to a third. So I've, I'm carrying the holy meat in my, in my butcher's bib because honestly, the priest's garments, especially those that are doing sacrifices, looked very similar to, to butcher's clothing. And they would carry the big chunk of whatever it was to go on the altar in that bib, so to speak, or that, that apron. And so that apron would then be considered holy because the meat within it was holy. Haggai is now asking the priests, okay, so you got the meat up on the, on the altar, you're doing that thing, now you take your apron and it brushes something else. Your apron was holy, is that other thing you've just brushed with your apron, is it holy? The priests are like, well, no. Duh. Right? There's kind of, kind of one of those moments. All right? Then he asks this question. If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, that consecrated food in particular, does it become unclean? Priests answer back, it does become unclean. So here's the thing. Holiness is not attained through indirect contact, right? Holiness is not obtained through indirect contact, but one defiled by contact with a dead body pollutes all that he comes into contact with. Holiness can't be gained indirectly, but defilement is everywhere. See, what Haggai is getting at is that all that the people do is unclean. The lack of holiness is not because they have been giving some sort of improper sacrifice like we've seen in, in previous prophecies or, or previous 
test, things in the Old Testament where the, where the prophets are, are harping on the people about the, how lousy their sacrifices are and how they're, they're giving poorly to God. That's not what it is. The folks are trying here. But here's the thing. They have allowed a ruinous corpse to be amongst them. And that ruinous corpse is the destroyed temple they have not yet rebuilt. That's where their defilement comes in. They still have no proper place to worship the Lord their God. They have no proper place for with Him to sit and dwell with them. That has defiled the people. Verse 15, the word consider here is used. I like that it can also be translated from the Hebrew into set your hearts. Set your hearts from this day onward. Consider from this day onward. The people are to remember the past, but again, they are looking and working towards the future. And they're looking at what God is currently doing amongst them. And they're to reflect on their situation prior to beginning the reconstruction process and realize that their lack of prosperity didn't bring them to repentance. Man, that sounds modern day, doesn't it? Who would have thought something happened in 500 B.C. would sound so modern day that, that we, we work, we work, we work, we toil, we toil, we toil, and we don't realize that maybe we're doing it because our hearts are in the wrong place and God's not letting any of that prosper in any of us. We wake up every morning feeling like all we do is spin our wheels because God's just got us in a mud slip because we don't wake up and focus our lives on him. That's what's happening here with Haggai. They worked and they worked and they worked. Their lack of progress was directly tied to all of this. They didn't come to their, their repentance. They should consider the current state of their hearts. Are they in repentance now? And to experience, remember that common experience prior to the construction before it had restarted. And are they in repentance? See, see, there's this direct tie between their lack of progress on the rebuilding of the temple and the lack of prosperity they would have in their fields. Hear this. They want the blessings of God without being obedient to God. And then they have the gall to be surprised and disappointed when they aren't blessed. Y'all, I don't know if it sounds like any of you, but it sounds like me some days. sounds a lot like me some days i want the blessings of god but man there's fun stuff to do that isn't necessarily obedient to him then i want to act shocked and disappointed when god doesn't bless me like like i have some sort of right to go to him and say you should have blessed me no and that's what god is having them consider That's what God is having them think about. See, God tells them that they were struck and their crops were blighted because they would not obey and turn to him. 
God had taken drastic action against them. And he took drastic action against them because he loves them. And he loves them as children. They are his. And even that drastic action he took still did not lead them to obey. Verses 18 and 19. God tells the people to look back and to see how things were going since the beginning of the construction. Honestly, they still look pretty bleak. They've already planted, but the harvest is months away. But here's the thing that happens. The Lord promises an abundant harvest. See, the work on the temple has has been started again, but it's been started this time in earnest. This is evidence that the people have a renewed devotion to following the Lord. They are returning to a God-centered lifestyle. God is not obligated by obedience to the people. It's not it. It's not like, oh, they're doing something. Now I have to do something. No, that's not how God works. But in God's grace and in God's mercy, he promises a better future for them. Here we're we're getting ready to end up, right, to kind of end the chapter here and conclude Haggai's prophecy. And we see this, this, this thing that we have about Zerubbabel and, and a signet ring. The thing is, is this prophecy, is, as Haggai is proclaiming this, is, is given at the exact same time as he had said everything in, in verse 10. Right? So it's kind of like he takes Zerubbabel aside. Hey, Zerubbabel, here, I got something special for you from God. See, God had 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 these people considering their past. He'd had them considering their present. But now he focuses on their future. And this is where our sovereign God warns of the coming destruction of kingdoms and nations. It's a future where all of creation trembles. Kingdoms are overthrown. Armies perish. There will be complete and utter destruction of, of all political enemies by God's divine hand. The chaos will be so great that the enemies of God's people, (laughs) I love this, the enemies of God's people wind up destroying themselves in their chaos. Ultimately, this prophecy focuses on the actions of the divine king who wears a signet ring. The signet ring is, is the promise of the house of David being restored. And God makes Zerubbabel here that signet ring. He's, he's descended from David. He's going to continue on in that path, showing how much God loves Zerubbabel, how much God loves Israel, that he's going to, through Zerubbabel, restore the house of David. This shows that God has, has forgiven his people. This shows that he's restoring that close relationship with them, that he's a God who not only forgives and blesses, but he's a God who redeems and restores. But it's, it's bigger than just Zerubbabel. See, what we, we see here is that, that the people in, in, in Haggai chapter 2, is that the people of Israel have heard the word of God and they've repented together and they've obeyed God. And their obedience affirmed God's presence among them and, and that God's people began to flourish again as they obeyed God's word. 
They didn't just flourish physically. They didn't just flourish monetarily. They didn't just flourish in those ways, but they began to flourish spiritually. As God restores this close relationship between them and himself. See, the central theme of Haggai's message is is the restoration of the house of the Lord by his people and how that mediates God's presence here. We go back to that signet ring idea, though. What we see is is that's a foreshadowing of the house of David to be fulfilled yet to come in Jesus Christ. That that permanent king, the eternal king, will reign. See, and it's important for us to understand that as followers of Christ. Because as followers of Christ, we don't have a physical central temple building for God's presence to dwell. If, if, if a tornado were to come through, wipe out the two buildings that are on the property that's 532 North Christie Road, Martinsville, Indiana, Calvary Heights Baptist Church would still exist. It would still exist. It's not about structure and building. It's about people. And because God now has changed how this works, there's not the physical central temple for the God's presence to dwell. As followers of Christ, we, we are the temple within which God dwells. As a follower of Christ, as we read through the book of Haggai, Haggai should convict us as Christ followers to make sure that we have not allowed our hearts to fall into a state of ruin before our God. We do not want the temple of our hearts, the temple of our lives, to be a rotting corpse in our midst that defiles us as a temple in, a physical temple in ruins did for Haggai. Throughout Haggai, God asks the people to reflect on their situation. Have you reflected on your own sin? Have you taken the time to do that? As you, as you read through Haggai, it, it, it's about a 15-minute read. Read through it again on your own time. Listen to it in, in your audio Bible. Consider your ways, he says numerous times here. Have you reflected on your own sin? And when you reflected on your own sin, did you find God's grace to be clearer as you remember where you were and now where he has brought you to be? Do you have unconfessed sin in your life right now? Is there anything keeping you from bringing it before God in repentance? Our God forgives, our God blesses, our God redeems, and our God restores. When we repent and are obedient to Him, He makes the miserable majestic as He forgives, blesses, redeems, and restores. We're going to get ready to to sing a, a closing number. And as we get ready to sing that closing number, I want us to to stop and and think about this. Consider where we have been and where God is wanting us now. Are, Are we taking where we're at now, confessing before Him, 
looking to be obedient for his glory, for his sake. Turning our lives to Jesus to redeem, restore us back to him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much. Thank you for the word that you've given to us through your prophet Haggai. I thank you for the time we've had to, to be in it. I pray that as we continue to look at these minor prophets as we continue to study them. We continue to convict us, draw us closer to you, to have us consider our ways before you. The call is always to turn back to you and to be obedient. For you are a God who restores those who repent and are obedient. Father, we want that. We want to be restored back to you in that way. draw us close to you through that. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen.